Hello, I'm Onano Bhattacharya. Welcome to Why, the podcast that looks in-depth at the strange anomalies and awe-inspiring questions that live rent-free in our brain. As anyone who has ever seen me dance knows, a sense of rhythm is by no means universal, even among humans. Charles Darwin, whose prowess on the dance floor goes unrecorded, was of the opinion that before humans could communicate their feelings to each other with language, we charmed each other with musical notes and rhythm. Darwin even went further, speculating that the perception of musical cadences and of rhythm is probably common to all animals. That's quite a bold statement, and sadly, there's been scant evidence to back it up. To date, only a handful of animals have been shown to be capable of synchronising their movements to a beat, let alone TikTok dance. But those animals that can rock a rhythm have made it big on the internet. Snowball the Cockatoo was filmed bopping along to the 80s tunes Girls Just Wanna Have Fun and Another One Bites the Dust. And in 2013, Ronan, a California sea lion, became the first non-human mammal ever shown to keep a beat by nodding along to Earth, Wind and Fire and the Backstreet Boys. So what makes these animals special? Today on Why, we're asking, why do some species have rhythm? The building blocks of rhythm. So maybe the full package for rhythm, perhaps it is uniquely human, but then every constituent component, every building block, if you look for it, you can find it in at least one species. Andrea Ravignani is a professor of psychology at Sapienza University of Rome. For each building block of human cognitive capacities that we have looked into, especially when it comes to music and language, we have found another species that has it as well. If you were an alien observing humans from far away, you would wonder why so many people spend so much time listening to music, making music, clubbing, you know, with musical background and so on, when from a pure biological perspective, music per se does not seem to confer any strong evolutionary advantage like color vision or bipedalism, which instead evolved for a clear reason, right? So I absolutely love devoting a lot of my research energies to try to understand why are we such a peculiar species that has these musical capacities and in particular these highly developed rhythmic capacities. So why are we rhythmic animals? What's our best guess as to, you know, why this evolved in us? So rhythm capacities have a lot to do with our brains. And the big problem of brains is that they do not fossilize. So ideally, you know, we would want to reconstruct how the early steps of human evolution and at what point we gained neural cognitive psychological abilities underpinning rhythm. But we cannot do that. The second best option would be, well, if we had a time machine, we could travel back in time and witness human evolution at different stages and our rhythmic capacities at different stages. However, we also cannot do that, obviously. So we need to rely on indirect methods. There are many, many hypotheses out there on, on why we became such a musical and rhythmic species. And some of them have to do with our capacity to control and produce and to learn sounds. Some other have to do with group cohesion. Some have to do with mother-infant bonding in our species. Some of them have to do with gait or breathing control. And the idea is 
all of them could be partly true, so I won't buy into any of these particular hypotheses. They just need more empirical testing. And that's why I was quite lucky to receive two international research grants that will allow me in the next five years to research the origins of human rhythm, why we became such rhythmic animals. That seems a really good point to ask you how you go about studying this. The idea is to use the empirical methods, so to do experiments and observations, to compare hypotheses. And the idea is it's an approach that has to do both, both with breath and depth. And breath could be the breath of different animal taxonomic groups. The first step is to conceptualize rhythm, not as one monolithic block, but as a bunch of things composed of Lego building blocks, right? So our rhythmic capacities are composed by many neurocognitive capacities that underpin rhythmicity. And for instance, one could be the capacity to recognize patterns. One could be in time, right? Patterns in time. If I knock, uh, if I do something like that, your pattern matching module to make it simple in your brain will map that pattern is just little drums over time and match it with something you maybe have heard a year ago. Then there is the capacity to synchronize. There is the capacity to drum. There are many, many building blocks. And then what we do, armed with these building blocks, we go look for them in different species or in different, potentially even different groups of human populations. And I particularly devote a lot of my time to cross-species work. So inspired both by past work in zoology, so in animal behavior, but also in human psychology and cognitive neuroscience, we rely on both these traditions. We go look for building blocks of rhythm in other animals also around the world. So you might think about, you know, there are some singing primates. So with a collaboration, we've worked with singing lemurs in Madagascar, but we also work on the North Sea in the Netherlands and Denmark with seals. We look at the rhythm of tail wagging in dogs, because that's also a rhythmic behavior that is ready to be observed by every human being, and it's not being studied much. So we really go look for these rhythmicity building blocks across species. And the idea is that if many species closely related to us, so like chimpanzees or even gorillas, show a particular building block, that's probably shared by our last common ancestor. Tell me more about these dogs wagging their tails. This is a sort of lab experiment that you do. And tell me a little bit about the seals as well. The dogs is still an ongoing project, so I think there is still not many results available, right? But it's just driven by the observation that, okay, what is the most readily available rhythmic behavior that we observe in other species as humans? And, you know, dogs are everywhere, right? They are sometimes called our best friends. And we see this communicative rhythmic behavior that, for instance, we do not see in wolves. Wolves do not walk their tails so much. So why do dogs walk their tails? It's a result of human domestication. Great. But then it means that we have superimposed our rhythmicity into a species we have domesticated. I have spent the last five years working with seals, among other species. Myself, I've lived for almost three years in a tiny, tiny village on the North Sea, which is a very special place in the Netherlands because it's the biggest seal rehabilitation center in Europe. So seals come in for two, three months when they're orphaned. And then it's like an orphanage hospital for baby seals. They get rehabilitated and then put back into the wild. And there, in a non-invasive way, I got a chance to study their rhythmic capacities and their capacities for vocal learning, so their capacities to learn new sounds. How do you do that? Do you play them recordings and see if they pop along? Yeah, so, and that's the combo of 
human cognitive neuroscience, but also animal behavior comes in, right? So what we try to do also because of the setup, right? We are in a hospital. We cannot train animals because they should go back into the wild. So we had to devise experimental paradigms that could work and wouldn't bother the animals. So for instance, we collect recordings of animal vocalizations, of seal vocalizations, and then we arrange them in rhythmic sequences, more or less regular, more or less predictable. And then we play them to the baby seals and we measure the timing of their responses. What we see is a mechanism similar to turn-taking in human conversation, right? Where we alternate. So if we're having a very active conversation, I say something, you say something, I say something, you say something. And we see something very similar in seals. So seals have this entrainment. It's not real synchronization like when we do when we dance, but in a very ecologically relevant setup, they show this rhythmic behavior with their voices. That's amazing. I was under the impression that actually very few animals have shown the sorts of abilities that you're talking about, but you seem to be studying, you know, a huge array from dogs to seals. Now, we know that some parrots have this ability to sort of bop along, to tap along to beats and dance, and we know about the sea lion. What other animals have been shown to kind of feel the beat in this way? I think the crucial take-home message is that, again, the building blocks of rhythm. So maybe the full package for rhythm, perhaps it is uniquely human, but then every constituent component, every building block, if you look for it, you can find it in at least one species. So for the case of beat perception and synchronization, which is a very complex behavior, right? So it's not purely physical, it's a cognitive psychological thing because you need to extract a regular grid from a complex sound and then predict what comes next and move your body in time so that the movement coincides with what comes next. That indeed has only been seen in humans, in one parrot and one sea lion. There is some evidence also coming from some primates, but it's not obvious and it's a bit of a paradox because among primates, we seem to be very good at bit perception and synchronization and then the other best examples are non-primates. So it's a bit like uh, discontinuity in the victory of life. Yes, so I did want to ask you about our closest living relatives, actually, chimps and bonobo monkeys. How developed are these sorts of skills in them? Or even orangutans. King Louis from the Jungle Book was a mean dancer. In my opinion, there seems to be a bit of a discontinuity between us and other primates, but we have found some building blocks, right? We have found some building blocks of rhythm in other primates. So, for instance, chimpanzees don't seem to be very good at synchronizing, but they engage in this buttress drumming behavior in the wild. So they drum some sequences on three parts that seem to have quite a bit of structure. So they show, like humans, a percussive behavior, which probably has a different function from what we use percussive behavior for, but they don't seem to synchronize. On the other hand, I've worked also with gibbons, which are also apes. They are the farthest ape away from us. And what they do, they show very regular rhythmic patterns in their voices, in their song, and also some form of vocal synchrony. So the male and the female sing together. It serves a pair bonding function. And the overlap between the notes of their song is not random. Then there are the Indri lemurs, which are these giant, critically endangered lemurs from Madagascar that sing. And in them, what we found was categorical rhythms. So if you think about... You probably recognize this intro from a very famous musical piece. One reason why this intro is very memorable 
is that between the stomp and the stomp, there is one interval of time. And then between the clap and the stomp, there are two intervals of time. So basically, rhythm is quantized there. It comes in units, one unit, one unit, two units. And this hadn't been seen in any other mammal, but we did find it in the song of the wild injury lemurs. So again, another building block that we can find in a primate that is far away from us. What do we know of how this stuff gets processed in the brain? Is there a part of the brain, the human brain at least, that's devoted to rhythm? And from what we know, is that same brain region responsible for these building blocks that you're talking about in other species? So let's start with humans. I think one of the coolest findings in the last 20 years of human cognitive neuroscience comes from Jessica Grant in Canada. So what she did is she put human participants in an fMRI scanner and they were passively listening to music with different levels of syncopation. So with different levels of rhythmicity. Let's say that Bach has very low syncopation, but ska music and reggae has very high syncopation, right? Because it makes you move. And what she found is that these participants, the higher the syncopation, so the higher the rhythmicity, the more active the motor cortex was. So the motor cortex is in charge of movement. But again, these participants were lying like mummies in the scanner. So this finding tells us that music makes you move. So there is an intimate link between rhythm and movement, even when you're not moving. Now, asking whether these other areas are in charge of rhythm in other species is an excellent question, but really difficult to test empirically, right? especially with some wild animals, it would be impossible to test them in a scanner. What we are doing and what I'm collaborating on different species, both primates and non-primate species, is to do non-invasive EEG, non-invasive electroencephalogram. That's the device that we use with human adults and babies to measure the electrical activity of the brain. And what we have been doing over the years is developing setups for measuring brain activity non-invasively. But we are still quite far away from pinpointing which parts of the brain are in charge of that. Ronan the Sea Lion's favourite song was apparently Boogie Wonderland by Earth, Wind and Fire. But I'm just wondering... Is there any evidence that animals have a sort of emotional connection to music? I mean, is this really his favourite song? Does uh, Ronan actually have a proper preference for some tempo over another? You know, is there some copying going on? Are they just trying to please the human experimenters? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so glad you mentioned Ronan because uh, she's an amazing sea lion. I got to meet her once when I was in, in California. She has gifted science with a lot of insights about so many different things. It's important to remember that Ronan was trained to synchronize to music, right? And I think when it comes to the emotional meaning and balance of music for animals, it can be a bit of a tricky territory because we simply don't know, right? So music is a human cultural artifact designed by human brains. If dolphins or mice were the ones designing music for themselves, if such thing existed, it probably wouldn't sound music to our ears. So I think one needs to be as agnostic as possible when doing these experiments and the least anthropocentric possible. Of course, music is a human product, but we also need to take into account the ecological niche of different species. So human cognitive neuroscientists have been looking at synchronization in humans, and then they extend it to primates. 
and birds. And then since a few years, myself and a few more colleagues have been trying to push forward for the inclusion of other taxonomic groups in the study of rib. In particular, frogs, insects, there are crickets and cicadas that engage in synchronized chorusing. The sounds they produce are very simple. But would you believe me if I told you that for some tempi, cicadas and crickets are much more synchronized than two human beings can be. So for a specific tempo, cicadas and crickets are the best synchronizers in the animal kingdom. If the BPM changes, then they were, they're not synchronized anymore. But then if by designing an experiment where we take into account human psychology and animal behavior, we tap into that perceptual niche of those animals, then we can find maybe one of the building blocks that we share with those species. So we've heard that having rhythm can create the building blocks of language, and this is seen in the evolution of humans. Does this mean all animals able to sense and convey rhythm have the potential to develop a complex vocal language? So in my experience, having colleagues from almost any possible discipline, maybe excluding Sumerian language and international law, but I have colleagues from many, many different disciplines, right? So I hang out, I spend an equal amount of time with human psychologists and neuroscientists and with zoologists, right? That have a different, very different approach to studying behavior. And in my experience, every time that someone declares a priori that a trait is uniquely human, then a zoologist comes and says, look, I have found the albino frog species of Nicaragua that has this trait, right? So I'm not saying that we can copy paste and find the exact copy of human capacities in other animals, but for each building block of human cognitive capacities that we have looked into, especially when it comes to music and and language, we have found another species that has it as well. And here I'm also thinking convergent evolution, right? So around us, we find a lot of animals with wings. There are birds have wings, insects have wings, bats have wings. Their last common ancestor did not have wings. There you have three groups of animals that independently evolved wings under the challenge of flying. So, and there I'm thinking a bit in the same term. Okay, we developed synchrony. Crickets develop synchrony, birds develop synchrony. Why, right? Even though our last common ancestor didn't have it, the fact that we all three have this building block maybe can tell us about our own evolution. We've talked about how rhythm might be a precursor to the development of language in humans. Leaping sort of into the fantastic a little bit, what, in your view, are the animals that come closest to having that full capacity to develop something like complex vocal language. Right. So we cannot find the full-fledged human language in any other species. Of course, like we couldn't, if we were studying dolphin communication and whistle system, we wouldn't find another species that has the exact same thing. However, a classical example is from the Nobel Prize laureate von Frisch, the German biologist who got the Nobel Prize for as one of the three inventors of ethology that was studying bees and the waggle dance of bees, he found, could communicate and encode for the other bees the distance and the direction of a source of food. But then, of course, bees don't articulate sounds. So if you're looking for sound production in bees, that's the wrong species to look for the building block. The learning sounds, which is so crucial for human speech, 
is an incredibly rare capacity in the animal kingdom. Because, of course, a human raised on a desert island will not automatically speak English or Japanese. We need learning. However, if we look at all other primates, basically, a chimpanzee raised on a desert island will quite likely still, quote-unquote, speak chimpanzees without need of learning. So there are only three other mammalian groups that learn sounds using the same vocal apparatus that we have. These are bats, elephants, and seals. And that's one of the reasons why I started working with seals, to understand this capacity to learn sounds that is so rare, so, so rare in mammals. Why do you think it's so rare? Is it because we haven't looked hard enough? Why is it that uh, we're struggling to find these examples? I think because simply it isn't there. That's nothing bad, right? It again very much depends on the niche, ecological, evolutionary, perceptual niche that an animal evolves into. So because of different pressures, we at some point evolved language capacities, linguistic capacities, maybe also because of some other pressures, we evolved musical capacities, but that's even, to me, music is even a bigger biological mystery than language, honestly. So you're looking across this amazing spectrum of animal life and you're finding sort of a building block here, a building block there, but is there a sort of pattern? Do these rhythmic centers, do they serve a purpose that's common? Depends on your definition of music, right? But we see that some animals sing where song is intended in the biological and zoological sense. So it's a complex vocal display which does not serve a referential function. So animals sometimes produce calls and calls are, hey, mommy, or there is danger, or I'm hungry. And these are calls. But then there are also songs in animal communication systems that are complex vocal displays that don't have a referential meaning, but potentially an emotional meaning. And in some animal species, in seals, in humpback whales, in birds, we see development of complex songs, right? And an astonishing thing of some complex songs in some animal species is cultural transmission. So we see that some animals listen to other songs, copy them, maybe introduce some variations on the theme, and you can see all these musical trends that spread around the world or around the ocean, if you're thinking of aquatic mammals. So some of that is already happening, right? Hello, I'm Ross Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rhythm in animals may be more widespread than previously thought, and it's still an exciting developing area of research. Perhaps all animals do have their own rhythm. It's just that we need to adjust our expectation of what rhythm is. If we do, we could one day hear singing seals on Spotify, accompanied by jungle drums. That's all from us today on Why. Thank you to Dr. Andrea Ravignani. My pleasure. 
We'll be back with more scientific anomalies, conundrums, and weird facts soon. Don't forget to follow the podcast so you don't miss an edition. And follow us on social media too. Links are in the show notes. I've been on an Obatacharia asking... Why? See you next time. Why was written and presented by Onano Bhattacharya. The lead producer was Anne-Marie Luff, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. Artwork is by James Parrott. Theme music is by DJ Food. Why is a Podmasters production. Thank you.